In the process of learning about improvisation, you necessarily start learning about chaos theory and complexity theory. And then I started finding this word K-Ord. And it turns out that the gentleman D. Hawk made up the word K-Ord. When he became the first president of Visa, the credit card company, he thought to himself, how could I lead this global organization based on the virtual exchange of currency in a way that mimics more of what I see happening in nature? And what he didn't say, what I say is that he fundamentally was saying that organizations are organisms. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is changing lives through ideas so that people can build their creative confidence for years to come, get paid their worth, and make an impact. She's a hybrid thinker, creativity strategist, global keynote speaker, and author whose unique combination of street cred and scholarship has the ability to both inspire and drive action. She's got a background in cultural anthropology and fashion, was a professor for 16 years, and is currently president of Figure 8 Thinking, where she advises leaders on transformation by applying wonder and rigor to amplify growth and business value. When she's not busy being a member of the Forbes Coaches Council or a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, you just might find her dancing up a storm in hip-hop class or fine-tuning her foxtrot on the ballroom floor. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a personal trainer for our creativity muscle and author of The Creativity Leap, Dr. Natalie Nixon. Natalie, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really appreciate you coming by the show. Hi, Harpreet. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. You really wove together all these great nuggets. Thank you so much. That was awesome to hear. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, I, I kind of pride myself on my introductions. I, I try to make them as, as stellar thank as possible. You. Thank you so much for joining us live on, on LinkedIn and YouTube. Uh, Natalie, appreciate you being here. By the way, we'll be taking a couple of questions from the audience here and there. And the favorite question, I guess, will be winning a uh, copy of Dr. Nixon's book, which I will send out to you. So go ahead and share this video with your network, comment, smash a reaction. You just might win a copy of uh, The Creativity Leap. Before we get into your book, which I really, really enjoyed, as you could tell here by all the wonderful, let's, let's learn a little bit about you. Talk to us a bit about where you grew up and what it was like there. Yes. So I am an American. I'm an African-American. I grew up in Philly, Philadelphia, on the East Coast of the United States. And I am solidly Gen X. So I grew up in the 70s and was a teenager during the 80s. And I'm the generation that birthed hip hop. So it's, it's very much, there's some real visceral and iconic moments that I can tie to music and to my life. And I grew up and I guess it was a, a lower middle class, upwardly aspiring blue collar community in Philly. I was a city kid. My, my parents, it was very important for them to expose us to being independent. And so I, I started taking public transportation when I was about nine years old with my younger sister, actually. And we grew up playing double dodge and tag and jacks and those sorts of games that the front of the stoop and the streets were our playground 
And I went through three very different types of schools by the time I graduated from high school at age 17. I started out in urban Philly public schools from kindergarten through third. Actually, I should say my first indoctrination to education was in a very crunchy granola, very liberal, Unitarian, cooperative nursery school. And then I went to urban Philly public school from K through third grades Then a suburban public school where I was the first black kid in my class. My parents made the the decision for us to go to that school because the academics were stronger, but socially it was very challenging. At first, at least, I was called the N-word for a few days after school for the first couple of weeks of school in fourth grade at age nine. And then later those same kids, uh, we became buddies because I was I was pretty athletic and play helps kids to form bonds. I then went to a private prep school from 7th through 12th grade, uh, Quaker school. And I mentioned this because that formalized socialization of education and learning combined with what our parents equipped us with, which was, I would say my, my parents were are deeply curious people. My father passed away in 2012. My mom is still with us. And they really equipped us with a lot of things I talk about today, wonder and rigor. They were pretty strict. And they also were big proponents of us following our heart and our imagination. And I grew up studying dance from a very young age, from age age four. But I mentioned the the three different types of schools that I attended because that really shaped what I think was very early on in me, a, a great capacity to be an observer because I was so often the other and I had to learn very quickly how to adapt, how to make others comfortable with me and how to navigate various boundaries. And I also got exposed at a really young age to very different types of cultures of learning, which was very different in the urban public school environment I was in versus the suburban public school environment versus the the Quaker prep school where I graduated high school. And I loved growing up in Philly. I, um, you know, Philly, we are often a very overlooked city. We're in between what are the nation's capital and one of the most dynamic cities in the world, New York City. And what Philly has is just this incredible, this, these very layered gifts of kind of a small town feel and very kind of regular type of vibe combined with an incredible arts music and foodie scene. And I and I I absorbed all of that growing up, especially as the older I got, I would hop from dance studio to dance studio, taking classes at different parts of the city and really got to know so many different types of people that way. I like Philly a lot. I've been there a few times. I always enjoy it every time I go there. I think it's a really interesting place and I like history. So much amazing. I'm glad you visited. Yeah. So I'm definitely excited to get into to the wonder and and rigor because uh, that plays a huge theme uh, in your book but there's an interesting something interesting you said there that that i want to kind of learn more about you said that uh, indoctrination to education talk to us about what you mean by that well one of the hardest things for me when i first started at this amazing high school where i graduated from germantown friends school it was this very different culture of learning so for example we were allowed to call our teachers by their first name. And these some of these teachers were older than my parents. And that was very uncomfortable for me because in my culture, you show a lot of deference and respect to adults. So you don't call them by the first name. There was a campus. I wasn't in just in one classroom or one building the entire day. I had to navigate different spaces and be on class on time and and feel have myself collected and ready to learn. There are very different types of sports activities. I had never seen a field hockey stick before seventh grade, and I took the bus back and forth to school. So in my neighborhood, um, walking down the street with a field hockey stick after I got off the bus to get home, I was navigating quite a bit sometimes, some days. So, you know, th- there there was that. And the other thing I mean is that I got really good at giving the teachers what they wanted. I got very good, especially in elementary school. I mean, I was I was a smart kid. I think most children are smart. It, it it's just a matter of having access to environments that really cultivate the type of smart that is special to you. And 
I had gotten really good at getting gold sticker stars on my worksheets and anticipating what the teacher wanted and that sort of thing. And then I got into seventh grade in a school environment, a learning environment, where it was all about ask a better friggin' question, beg, ask for forgiveness, not permission. And I was a bit paralyzed because I didn't know which way to move right away. It was it was just a lot to absorb. And I saw my grades plummet in seventh and eighth grade, not because I wasn't smart, but because the emotional and mental barrage of new information and new things to absorb was a lot. And it and it took a, a, a beating, I think a bit on, on my confidence. And once I figured out the codes, the language, the cues that were largely unspoken. And once I felt more steady and having mastered that, the academics came right back again and, and I and I began to excel um, because I was more confident in my place in, in that environment. So that's what I mean by the culture of learning. And I and I I think to, to this day, what tends to happen in not in all, but in some especially urban public school environments, is is that, you know, at least this is the way I, I remember I remember thinking this as an eighth grader. My friends back on the block and back in public school are being, are learning how to fill in the dots, how to stay within the guardrails. And now I'm in a place where we're learning how to make up the rules (laughs) that tell people which dots to fill in. And I didn't quite have that language, but it really struck me around eighth grade that 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 was the difference in the learning environment that I was in. Really interesting that that point about asking questions. We'll get into uh, how to ask better questions later. But back in seventh grade, I uh, just reminded me I I actually got sent to it was called on campus suspension and a phone call home by my language arts teacher because I was asking stupid stupid questions. <gasps> you oh no! That? Yeah, you that, know that that reminds me of something I call question shaming. Mm. You know that that experience that you just described. I think so many of us have a moment where we experience that question shaming. It, it could have been on a job. It could have been in a, in a learning environment. And that sometimes dramatically and sometimes very subtly, it starts to change the way we show up in our confidence to ask questions. Yeah, it definitely did play a huge, I think, impact on me going going forward after that. Like I just kind of shut up in class because, I mean, I grew up to immigrant parents getting on-campus suspension and a phone call home. Yeah, you can imagine what I was dealing with when I got home. I had a very, very sore behind. Not uh, good. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about your interest in creativity research. When did that start? How, how did your interest in that kind of get sparked? Wow. Well, I now, because I think about creativity as a competency and as a capability that we all must make choices to be much more intentional about, I, looking back retrospectively, I understand that I always found the stuff that I was interested in to be incredibly creative. For example, in, in college, I decided as a double major in anthropology and Africana studies to write my undergraduate thesis on Black women's hair culture. I was, I was, I studied abroad in Brazil that my junior year, and I was just so intrigued by how Afro-Brazilian women were kind of like Afro-Brazilian culture in the 90s was kind of where African-American culture in the States was in the 70s. And I would bring, I would ask my mom to send me Essence Magazine, the copies of Essence Magazine to me in Brazil. And I would show some of my, my friends there and they, they would say things like, why do so many Black American women straighten their hair? They would just be looking at the ads. And I was like, oh my gosh, I Never saw that way before, but I, I guess there is quite a lot of that. Anyway, that that began this this journey to really explore that from a cultural perspective, from the perspective of ritual and language and artifact and the economics of, of Black hair culture. And this was in 1990-91. And I remember feeling so energized by that qualitative research process. And I found it incredibly creative, as, as creative as I, as I found my experiences studying dance and 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 being a member of the of the dance company at the college at Vassar College where I, where I graduated and then fast forward 
you know, I, I was, I ended up when many years later, when I was a professor, I followed the advice of mentors who recommended that I earn a PhD because they said, you're a great professor, give you more options if you have a doctorate. I didn't follow their advice to the T because what they didn't expect me to do was to earn a PhD while working full-time, which is what I ended up doing. I did that in four years and I did that, my doctoral studies in the field of design management at the University of Westminster in London. And again, for me, anything that gives me this hum, this, this, this buzz that's very energizing is, is creativity. And in that period, I, I really was learning a framework to suss together a very integrative way of thinking about the world, which had always been a part of me. I was always very hybrid, but I never had what I call the hook on which I could hang my hat. And suddenly when I was learning theory and epistemology and, and all that sort of thing around design management, I was able to frame the way I thought about creativity and business, design and strategy. And so that was that was kind of a more formal way that I really began to 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 dig into creativity and research. And now in my company, Figure Eight Thinking, uh, it's really an offering, a lens to help people, leaders who are trying to design cultures of innovation, to instead of just starting with we got to innovate because that becomes a buzzword and people begin to be a bit spastic in trying to innovate. My offering is that we actually need to pause, take a step back and start with creativity because creativity from my perspective is really the engine for innovation. Uh, Without creativity, we actually cannot innovate. The challenge, of course, is that in most of the corporate hallowed halls of hallowed halls of corporate America, if you if you lead with the word creativity, people look at you like you have three heads because we don't understand creativity. We think creativity is something that only artists do, which then the assumption is it's it's foo-foo, it's it's woo-woo, it's 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 frilly, it's an addendum to the important stuff, which is the furthest thing from the truth. Artists are exceptional at manifesting the ambiguity of the creative process. They invest the time and the space to wrestle with that ambiguity. But if you start thinking about creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems, then you realize the best strategists, the best engineers, scientists, entrepreneurs, teachers, farmers, plumbers are super, super creative. And so now in my work, I'm, I still in many ways, I feel like I'm a teacher. I just do it differently. I, it shows up differently. I, I, I execute it differently. But one of the things I love about being a professor. And I was a professor for 16 years. Before that, there was another chapter of my life where I was a middle school English teacher. And what I always loved about teaching is that I essentially got paid to learn. I love that. And I still bring that to the way I show up in my work. I'm I'm getting paid to learn and to think differently about big problems. Yeah, I absolutely love that about being a data scientist. Uh, I get paid to learn. It's such an amazing yes. feeling. I, I love what you're saying there about creativity and the, the artistry is not just for, for artists. I mean, it's part of the reason why my podcast is called The Artists of Data Science. Uh, yes. But but how, how can we make creativity more accessible and not just something that feels like it's in the domain of, of artsy people? That's a really great question. I think, and this is a big kind of overarching response, but I think part of it is to err more on the side of process rather than on the side of solution. And what I I mean by that is so much of the way we tend to be taught is to, you know, fill in the dot, what's the answer, come up with a solution. When in fact, in reality, life is full of gray 
And for example, I taught in a business school. I created and launched a strategic design MBA program. And a lot of what we were doing and developing the strategic design MBA program was zigging away and zagging away from traditional mindsets of MBA, of traditional MBA programs, which is about, you know, you get these case studies for like these 25-year-olds of you are the senior vice president of the Latin American region of this global national company and blah, blah, you know, and it's like, and 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 first of all, it's 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 not necessarily something that the student has much to to they don't have much personal data to mine from to make those sorts of to lay out those those options. But if we started to teach in a way that would equip us for what we're really going to be needing to deal with, which is scenario planning, right? Which is to identify multiple possible future scenarios. I'm sure as a data scientist, you go through a lot of decision tree making of if this, then that, which requires a ton of creativity. And I always remind, remind people that, that, and that's kind of linked to foresight work. Foresight has less to do with predicting a future, but it's everything to do with being hyper rooted in the present so that you can be super observant and identify what I call the the, the blips on the radar, right? The, the signals that make you say, I don't really have a rational reason yet to pay attention to this, but I'm paying attention. This is interesting. This is like veering off the beaten path and like let's let's follow the breadcrumbs a little bit further. So I think that one of the reasons that we're that we've kind of lost our our creative capacity and we have ghettoized creativity and the arts is be, is in, in large part, unfortunately, because of, of how we're educated. And then graduate school programs sometimes tend to just double down on that. So for example, one of the ways I help people to think about creativity is my three I creativity framework, right? Because I thought, well, it's not enough for me to tell people, okay, guys, toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems and off you go. You'll be creative. Like, how do you do that? How do you do that on a consistent, intentional basis? And I think one way to do that is to practice the three I's, which are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. So let's just take the intuition piece for, for a second. Intuition is a type of pattern recognition. It's that visceral nudge that I should work with that person and not this person, that I should, that I should not take this offer and take that offer, that I should go left and not right. And every of the 50 plus people I interviewed for the creativity leap, when I started to ha- get into conversation with them about intuition to a person, they all acknowledged that intuition was really crucial for their strategic decision making. And at the same time, we don't touch intuition in business school, law school, medical school. We don't touch it. We stay away from it. And yet it is an integral part of how some of the top leaders wayfind, sense make and figure out combined sometimes with, you know, cold heart, quantitative, rational data. I mean, that's I don't I don't personally believe there's any such thing as objectivity, but leave that aside for a moment. There is this hybrid approach that most stellar leaders have. They don't ignore that pattern recognition, that that intuition. So that's a longer way of just, just trying to point out that, that it would behoove us, especially now in this time where we can acknowledge we are in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution. The train has left the station. Tech is ubiquitous. We need to make more room for the human to show up. And part of what makes us so uniquely human is our capacity for creativity. So let's talk a little bit about your your definition of creativity. At the, I, I like the definition you kind of lay out in the book. I think now would be an excellent point to uh, to touch on that. Yes. So I, I think about creativity as our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Full stop. And and one of the the reasons I wrote the creativity leap is it's an offering. It's a provocation to hopefully offer a simple and accessible way for everyone to think about creativity. And wonder is about awe and audacity and asking big blue sky what if questions. It's about deep curiosity. And it's also about pausing, 
which we aren't particularly good at, even though the last 18 months of this global pandemic have been, I think, the universe's uh, collective push for us to take a collective pause and, and, and to sit ourselves down. Rigor is about deep focus, discipline, time on task, mastery of the fundamentals, and both are essential in the creative process. Sometimes people just stop at the wonder dimension of creativity, right? And that that's when we begin to think, oh, creativity is doing whatever you feel like. Actually, it's not. Creativity is really hard work, which I suspect is why most people don't truly engage in it. And they really end up doing a lot of copy pasting versus uh, copy iterate because copying in and of itself, there's no shame to that in a creative process. The great masters in European painting, they would literally copy and and the 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 the, the great artists, painters who came before them. Why? So that they could veer away from that, so they could really understand what those boundaries are. You need boundaries in creativity. Creativity loves constraints so that you can push up against them, you can stretch them, you can extend them, and you can see how you want to reinterpret them. You know, the American dancer, choreographer, Twyla Tharp said, wrote in her great book, uh, The Creative Habit, that before you can think out of the box, you gotta start with a box, right? So sometimes we just start with the wonder piece, which is amazing and important, and we can't forget that, and we need the rigor. And I, I, I wrote in the book, what I call this corollary to help people understand that wonder and rigor are copacetic. They are interdependent. And the corollary goes like this. Wonder is found in the midst of rigor and rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. So when I say that wonder is found in the midst of rigor, think, think of, I don't know, Maybe for you when you're coding that, I'm sure for you coding is like totally wondrous. For me, that would be pretty rigorous. And maybe at the beginning when you were first learning, it was, it was really rigorous because there was, there was so, so, much, so much of the fundamentals you were learning. But I, I believe that so, so much of our rigorous work and process, that's the middle of that rigor that we get this, ah, that like this, this, this like awakening moment, aha moment happens for us. So that's what I mean when I say wonder is found in the midst of rigor. So that's one way it's copacetic. The other way is when I say that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. So when we're going from meeting to meeting and Zoom Palooza or Teams Palooza and we don't pause and we don't have time to breathe and to have breaks, we will burn out. And yet we want to innovate. It won't happen. And you can't wonder at 80 miles an hour. You just can't, right? So the two are really essential in any creative endeavor. Yeah, I definitely love that. Because in data science, right, there's there's definitely when you're learning it, there's a lot of rigor in terms of how do I go from data to decision, right? There's, you know, you want to be rigorous in the way that you conduct these, these experiments. We're, we're doing science at the end of the day, right? We need to be rigorous with the way we conduct ourselves and, and you know, from, from end to end. But once you get that rigor in place and you understand it and it becomes very much ingrained as a part of how you think through a problem, that opens up so much more space to think creatively about you know, making different connections, right? So I, I definitely see that that aspect of wonder and rigor in, in the work that I do. It makes total sense to me. Am I, am I thinking of it the right way? Yeah, and 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 it, you mentioned experiments. The best experiments start with really great questions, right? And really great questions stem from deep observation, or not even deep observation, just noticing, noticing something, and pausing, and asking, "What if?" And also, I think literally nothing bad can follow the phrase, I wonder. <laughs> like, I wonder what would happen if I wonder, like nothing bad happens when we, after we utter those, those first few words, right? And so great scientists are incredibly creative because they allow their curiosity, their, their, their powers and skills for observation to drive them to discovery, which needs the rigor of processing, which needs the rigor of training and skill and the fundamentals of what, whatever the heuristic is that, 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 you're, that you're working from. So talk to us about the 
uh, asking better freaking questions. I love that you had that as a that like the title yeah. of the book. What's wrong with the way that we are currently asking questions? And let's let's start with that. What's wrong with the way that we're currently asking questions? Well, I don't know if it's there's, with, with the way. Maybe it's partly the way we're asking the questions, but it's also we we have like these quotas on question asking. And, you know, you and I start out the conversation just kind of reflecting on how in our personal lives and in different, so many people have experienced question shaming. So there's that, there, there's just kind of these unspoken eye rolling if, if people are asking questions. And it can sometimes come from the person who is leading the charge, which is unfortunate. So there's that. There's the personal experience we might have had through, from question shaming. But there's also this challenge of, kind of only stopping at the the what, when, where, how kind of didactic questions versus the super expansive or, or not, I won't say, excuse me, I won't say versus, but adding in, including in the super expansive questions such as what if, I wonder, I'm curious about why, you know, adding in an equal dose of those sorts of very expansive questions along with the kind of brick and mortar sorts of questions. I'm a big fan of the work of Warren Berger, uh, who I actually interviewed on a, I did an experimental podcast called The Wonder Rigor Lab, and I interviewed Warren, who's the author of um, The Book of Beautiful Questions and A More Beautiful Question. He calls himself a questionologist, and he's convinced that we should be teaching teaching how to ask questions, you know, and I, and I, I think it's a really intriguing idea that we kind of assume that people do know how to ask questions. And clearly, as little people, as children, that's the way we make sense of the world is through asking questions. And then to really expand upon that and actually hit the, the first book of his that I read, A More Beautiful Question, that book is based on his curiosity about what makes the most innovative companies so innovative anyway. And he went around to them, interviewed them, collected a lot of data and learned, and I'm, and I'm super simplifying what he learned. The book is great. So people should read the book, but really learned that leaders at these companies tend to start with big why questions. They start by asking super divergent types of questions. Why? Why do we only hire people from those sorts of schools? Why? Why don't we have anyone here who's really older than age 50? Why? Why have we never marketed to the Southern Hemisphere? Why, 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 why? And then you ask even bigger, you diverge even further to ask what if questions. What if we started recruiting people who had incredible life and practical experience, but only had a high school degree? What if? What if we started hiring people who went to, who don't have a graduate degree or went to a different type of school. What if we started marketing to the Southern Hemisphere? And then he starts, he's, he, he reflects that. Then they start to do convergent sorts of questions. How? How might we do that when you have to get really tactical and super practical? So there is that process. Why, what, if, how? And actually, when I first read the book and learned about that framing, I loved it because it really also par- was in parallel to a lot of the way design thinking thinks about problem definition. And a lot of my 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 background is in anthropology, fashion, design thinking, and that that idea of, of, of diverge, converge, diverge, conversion. There's a few additional questions that in design thinking one might ask, but I love how he really distills it down to why, what, if, how. So that's a, that's a way we could think about asking questions. But the other thing that I think we have to remember is that as leaders, it can't just be about asking your team, come on guys, ask me any question. I welcome your questions. Because we've all been through some sort of, most of us have been through some sort of question shaming. And most of us are a bit like arms folded across the chest, hands on the hips. and like, yeah, okay, you go first. I'm not going to ask a question. So what has to happen is that leadership has to model what they are asking for. And the best way to model that is to show a bit of transparency and to reflect back questions that you yourself are having about this marketing strategy we just launched. We might need to pause on this because I'm now wondering if X, Y, Z, what if we started forming a strategic partnership with a former competitor and, and explored co-opetition? And so 
one of the things Warren Berger mentioned to me in our conversation for the Wonder Burger Lab podcast was that when leaders commit to asking questions of themselves and invite questions, they are fundamentally ceding control. And that is terrifying. That is admittedly terrifying. But once you get over the terror and you embrace that level of humility that comes with being open to asking questions and inviting questions, then man, some really magical collaboration can start to happen. Yeah, absolutely love that. I mean, like I've got like an 18-month-old son and pretty much all the time he's just like, what's this? Why is that? Who's this? Why this? And I mean, for me personally, like I feel like I used to ask a lot of questions and this question shaming thing happened and it wasn't until recently where i was just like i'm just gonna ask questions like you know it used mm-hmm. to be a fear it used to be a fear of looking dumb like i'm supposed to be this yes educated guy i should know answers and i kind of just like got rid of that and just started asking questions and i mean yes you know, or i just ask questions yeah i, I certainly i remember being in high school and I was in the the physics that I probably shouldn't have been in. I was I because I had to always prove something. So I was in like the really hard more quantitative physics, which totally was not my jam. I should have been like physics for everyday people. That's the physics class I should have been, in, but I wasn't. And I would like work so hard to, you know, triple check my work and and then very shyly raise my hand. And meanwhile, meanwhile, the boys in the back of the class and they tended to be boys in the back of the class would be loud and wrong. They would just blurt out an answer. And because we were graced with really great teachers, the teacher would say, well, that wasn't what I was, that wasn't the answer I was looking for, but let's explore that. If we go down that path, what would happen? And let's say we look at it in this other way, right? So what you begin to learn is, wow, the world does not come crashing down on you and it really leads to further exploration. But still, for a number of reasons, I was in a position in that particular, again, going back to learning environment where I was so self-conscious of my difference and heard a lot from home, you know, as one of the few African-American girls and students, you'll stand out. If you make a mistake, you know, it will be it will be larger than than if others make a mistake. And so, you know, our parents mean well when they give us these sorts of admonitions, but sometimes it can play out in weird ways. But it wasn't until probably more as an adult where I began to really embrace being what I now call a clumsy student of something that I, in my personal life, that I became, I was able to transfer that level of humility and curiosity and just self-effacing ignorance, I don't know, into my work environment and didn't always feel like I had to look like I was on top of things and had the answer. The other thing that helped me personally was actually the more I learned about design thinking. And when we created the strategic design MBA program, the way I taught fundamentally changed. I went from a teaching style. I was never really sage on stage because I I never loved learning like that, but I definitely did more like seminar style teaching to a model of learning that was much more like what we see in design studio or art studio, right? Where I became a coach, a provocateur, a facilitator. If, If it was a three hour studio class. Content was delivered maybe a quarter of the time. 75% of the rest of the time was about students collaborating with each other. They were co-teaching with each other. I was, it was very physical. It was very kinesthetic. It was noisy. There was laughter. There was, people weren't in seats in one place for the whole time. I began to cede control. Right. I became more confident that learning was still going to take place without me having to be in the front of the room all the time. And that gave me more of my confidence in how I showed up with more um, brazenly asking questions. So there were a number of things professionally and personally that helped me to get more confident with asking questions. Yeah. Design thinking is something that kind of need to have, I've heard it, you know, I've heard people talk about it. I've heard about it in a couple of books that I've read. Can you kind of walk us through what design thinking in is and like, how does that help us be more creative? That's a great question because that's connecting the dots between a part of my career that I used to really be deeply rooted in and now is, is kind of an additional tool in my toolkit. So the way I define design thinking is that simple as possible, it is a problem solving process. It's a problem solving process that is 50% 
ethnography and qualitative research and and being deeply observant and 50% the application of design principles like prototyping and visualizing data. And you do a mashup of those two skill sets and you get design thinking. And then the four things design thinking tends to really highlight and value are empathy, being able to be in in the perspective of the people who are buying your stuff, people who are buying your goods, your services, your experiences, lateral thinking, which is this idea of borrowing from near and far and adjacent sectors to understand what can I learn? So if I work in education, what can I learn from the fashion industry, how ways that they work that could inform the, what I do in building out a new program? If I work in as a, as a marine biologist, what can I learn about the way auto mechanics work that could inform what I do, right? So that's lateral thinking. And then there's prototyping. Prototypes are rough draft, ugly mock-ups of a concept. And typically we think of, you can prototype tangible objects. You can prototype garments, apparel clothing. You can prototype furniture. You can also prototype services and experiences and processes. You can prototype the intangible. Pop-up shops are a great way to sometimes prototype the intangible. So we have empathy, lateral thinking, prototyping, and the fourth is story. And stories are human truth-telling. And when we allow people to tell their stories. And when we include stories as data, as my friend Valerie Jacobs likes to say, stories are data too. We humanize things. We actually bring layers and texture to just the wireframe of an, of a, of a launch of an idea. And uh, it makes it, it makes the venture much more accessible and relatable. Thank you very much for that. And a couple of other things that you're talking about that I'd love to get more, more clarity around is Divergent and convergent thinking. So let's start with with the divergent thinking. Like, what does that mean? Does that just mean like, yeah, I can't even, I, I don't have a good definition, working definition of what that means. So if you could help me out with that, I'd really appreciate that. Yeah. So divergent thinking is letting your mind wander. It's so divergent thinking is literally if you've ever done any kind of mind mapping and you just it's just kind of I won't call it mental gymnastics but it's 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 kind of like purposely letting your mind get lost that's divergent thinking and it's 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 going out and out and out and out of focus right or zooming out zooming out zooming out that's divergent thinking conversion thing is now we have all we've now collected all these dots right And now we have to begin to converge. We have to begin to connect the dots. We have to begin to see patterns. We have to see themes. We have to, in qualitative research, it's called sorting and sifting through the patterns that begin to form clusters and identifying meta themes and then how they're interrelated, interconnected. So, for example, I'll, I'll use the example of qualitative research. If you're trying to Figure out like what's next after the iPhone. That's a really big question. Maybe maybe it's not so big a question, but like what's next? So divergent thinking is just starting to really observe behaviors and going into the context of where people live, where, where they work, how they're living and working. And by the way, this question with what's next after after the, the smart device was very different 18 months ago. We would have answered the question and observed very different data two years ago, excuse me, before March 2020, then right now, right? Because now the constraints in our living, our needs have changed, the ways that we work are changing, right? But we begin to to gather all these different data points based on a lot of different contexts and a family situation and a person who is a who's in their 20s versus a person who's in their 50s and et cetera, et cetera. And then you get all these data points on this very divergent thing, letting your mind just really want and saying, okay, now what are the patterns and themes, if any, that we can begin to discern? And that's more of the convergent thinking. So, so it seems like wonder kind of goes hand in hand with the divergent thinking and then rigor with convergent thinking. Is that kind of like the... Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And and when wonder and rigor come together, as you mentioned in your book, it forms something called a chaotic system. I thought yes. That was- that was a very interesting uh, word. I, I love that word, chaotic. Talk to us about what chaotic systems are and how they work. 
So I first learned the word K-O-R-D, C-H-A-O-R-D, when I was in the middle of my PhD research. I was looking at the ways the Ritz-Carlton Hotel designs experiences for guests. And as I was doing interviews and observational studies, what kept coming up was when staff would say things like, when it works really well, it's like jazz. When it works great, where just vibing it flows and jazz, the word jazz kept coming up. And I mentioned this to my principal doctoral advisor, Alison Reeple, and she said, oh, right. You're talking about improvisational organizations. And it turns out there's this whole body of literature about how we can understand org behavior from the perspective of improvisation. And some scholars look at it from the perspective of comedic improv. Others look at it from the perspective of musical jazz improv. And I was really attracted to jazz improv because I grew up in a home filled with jazz music. My father was a big jazz head. He played, he learned to play the upright acoustic bass in the service in the Air Force right after high school. And so I love that. And I'm African-American and jazz is, is Black Americans' contribution to America's, America's classical music form. So there's a lot that really compelled me to dive more deeply into that. And in the process of learning about improvisation, you, you necessarily start learning about chaos theory and complexity theory. And then I started looking, finding this word chaord. And it turns out that the gentleman D. Hawk made up the word chaord. He, when he became the first president of Visa, the credit card company, he thought to himself, how could I lead this global organization based on the virtual exchange of currency in a way that mimicked more of what I see happening in nature? And what he didn't say, what I say is that he fundamentally was saying that organizations are organisms, right? They're made up of human humans and therefore they are not predictive. They are nonlinear. They are inconsistent. All the things that, you know, make us human. And so in nature, and he was a big naturalist. He was taking a walk through the woods and he has a great book about this called One From Many, if you want to read up more about it. But he observed that in nature, there's a ton of chaos but there's also order. And so he thought he did a mashup of the two words and he thought, what if I could lead, we could, we could run this organization much more like a K word. And so what's important to remember is that chaos is not anarchy. Chaos is randomness and order is not control. Order is structure, right? And so So I'm first introduced to this concept while I'm looking at improvisational organizations. But lo and behold, once you start learning about chaotic systems, you see them everywhere. It's the way our bodies heal. It abounds in nature. It's jazz. Jazz music is a complex chaotic system. Chaotic systems, all complex systems are emergent, adaptive, self-organizing. And you begin to see them everywhere. And so it's no surprise to me And this was not even intentional, but the definition that I landed on for creativity really is mirroring a chaotic system, right? Where wonder is more that chaos and rigor is more of that order. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Something I started actually just recently, a couple of days ago, I started just watching a few lectures on uh, complexity theory. I find that so, so fascinating. It is. It is. So I guess something that you talk about in, uh, in, in in your book is how we can you know s- some lessons that we can apply for improving the way we work and you talk about a few different things there's being hyper present there's valuing the outlier and then designing fluid structure i was wondering if you could talk to talk to us about about these kind of like at a high level and if you guys want detail you can check out now <laughs> check out the book. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll answer that question by talking about a couple of the leaps that I, I think about that we have to be making and the way we're approaching our work. So I'll, I'll share two. One leap that I think it's really important that we make is that we have to leap away from a mindset that's only valuing our deep subject matter expertise. And this is coming from a former academic where your subject matter expertise is super important, but we, we actually will do much better in a world where change is constant. Things are very fluid in flux. If we adopt, adapt much more of a polymath 
way of learning and thinking. And so a polymath, someone like Leonardo da Vinci was a polymath. So he was a mathematician. He was an artist. He was an astronomer, you know, so, so those of us who can really cultivate both breadth and depth, because that's really going to build our curiosity. It's really going to help us with that diversion and conversion thinking. We are better aligned with a multiplicity of strategic partnerships and how we go about problem solving. So one shift, one leap is towards having more of a polymath mindset and, and, and really committing the time to that. The other shift we have to make is away from silos in our organizations to really building community. And so, you know, we have literally in our organizations, our institutions, words like division and departments and tribes are important. I'm not going to say that tribes are, don't matter. We need tribes because tribes ground us and tribes are what give us identity. And the best organizations really know how to interweave those tribes and find some sort of commonality. And if not commonality, then an appreciation for the different approaches so that we truly build community. The best communities, the thriving communities, don't disavow tribes. They allow those tribes to exist and find synergy between them. Bit of interesting synchronicity, synchronicity here. I'm actually listening to a book by Peter Hollins called uh, Polymath. Uh, oh, so, I don't yeah. know that one. Peter yeah, Hollins? A, yeah, Peter Hollins. It's the short book. It's like a three hour listen on Audible. Oh, nice. You're me. Thank you listen you for to everything. That. Yeah, I listen to everything at like 1.5x. So it's like less than three hours. All right, I got this thing where I'll listen to like a long audiobook. Like I just got done listening to some Nassim Taleb book and then I'll listen to a short one and then I'll go back to another long one. Uh, oh, nice. I like that. Stuff. Uh, so talk to us about the remix, the reframe and the repurpose and how they help play a role in being creative. Yeah. So the, the remix, reframe and repurpose. So remixing is really about the need to do, to be open to recombinations of things to, instead of saying that clearly we're not going to be in the office five days, but most of us are not, then it's about how does this hybrid way of working now, what are the myriad ways that it might look? I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be Tuesday through Thursday, we're in the office, Monday, Friday, we're out, but there's, there's all all different sorts of cadences that we can begin to explore. So that's about the remix in this hybrid way of working, for example, between home and an office, virtual and in high touch in person. And the reframing is that we begin to question the, our judgments. We have judgment calls and value statements about every choice that we make. And if we are now in a, in a time and an era where we're, where we're revisiting the attributes of being able to work from home and being closer, if you have a young family, being closer to your children during the day, then reframing that not as being lazy or not as productive, but actually this is a work culture that actually values, reframing to valuing the human much more so, so that people actually feel seen and heard and therefore show up much more productive at work. And then the repurposing is that we show up very differently to our work. We end up showing up in a way that means um, we're more energized, we feel more appreciated, and we we therefore ultimately are giving even more creative output than we would before when we're, you know, half of half, a third of the day is spent in a commute. We get home, we're exhausted. We, we don't have as much interpersonal connection with our loved ones, and that has a spillover cascading effect, detrimental spillover cascading effect than how we show up to. Really appreciate that. So let's start winding down with a couple of last questions here uh, before we jump into a quick random round. But real quick, that's something you, you talked about in your book. I like all these different frameworks for thinking you, you, you share in the book. Uh, we talk about design thinking, conversion thinking, diversion thinking, and then there's something that uh, you talk about called fashion thinking. So talk to us uh, about this, this fashion thinking framework that you've got. Yeah, well, fashion thinking is something I started to get into the early stages of working on my PhD, I thought I was going to do research on something at the time. It was called Fashion Diffusion. And then I watched a TED Talk by Johanna Blakely, who was talking about it in a, in a slightly different way. She was saying how fashion's knockoff culture 
actually made the fashion industry much more innovative. I thought, oh my gosh, I got to talk to this woman that we're thinking about this in similar terms. So I reached out to her. We decided we want to collaborate. We write a kind of academic paper, something we call fashion thinking. And we get a a phone call, an email one day from a woman who's now become a great friend of mine, Valerie Jacobs, who is the chief growth officer at LPK, a branding firm. And she was leading the trends and foresight practice at LPK. And she comes from fashion and fashion trends. She said, oh my gosh, your article was forwarded to me. I also think about fashion in a similar way. In other words, instead of thinking of fashion as this frilly, woo-woo, unimportant, nonsensical, superficial industry, we actually were bringing to the table way for people in tech and food and bev and transportation and government and education to be innovating their own companies by thinking more like a fashion designer. So for example, fashion uses style unapologetically and style is really a curation device. Style is a way excuse me, of mapping out similarities and, and, and coalescing what otherwise could be very random looking. And it actually helps you, your brand to make a lot more sense to the customer. It helps you to, to tell the story about your brand a lot, a lot more cohesively. So for example, you know, Burberry ad you know, two blocks away or Ralph Lauren at two blocks away because it's highly curated with with styling techniques. And we also talked about how fashion really delves into the street as well as taps into the elite. So the fashion industry pays attention to what subcultures are doing and incorporates that into their work and their launches. So anyway, we laid out these seven principles. People can read more about it in a, in a couple of places. I, they can contact me if they're interested later. And and really, it, it, it kind of built an, a nice following. We were able to actually consult a number of different companies about how they could incorporate fashion thinking into the way they thought about their business. Natalie, last question here before we get into the random round but people you guys gotta check out natalie's book the creativity leap absolutely recommend it i will be going through the the reshares and and reactions to this post and i'll pick somebody who will win a copy of natalie's book i'll announce that on friday during our happy hour session but natalie it is 100 years in the future what do you want to be remembered for i mean my mission and my work is to change lives with ideas and I, I hope that what I offer as a way to help people, no matter what their work is, no matter what they do, to find purpose in their work in their lives through creativity. If that is that, if that has been my contribution, that will be huge. And I would also just add, I also want to be remembered as an African American woman who really contributed to the thought leadership and innovation and creativity and hopefully will be inspiration for so many others who want to be additive to these conversations. So that's that's how I would answer that. I love that. Thank you very much, Natalie. Uh, let's jump into a real quick random round. First question is, what are you currently reading? Oh, I'm reading Glenn, Glennon, um, Glennon Doyle's. Yeah. Oh, I just took it off. Glennon, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. I was reading, I'm almost, I have like 25 pages left. Actually, Valerie Jacobs gifted me that book. I really love it because A, she's an outstanding writer. It's memoir. And I just, I just love um, her honesty and it's just exploring her, her personal growth. What song do you currently have on repeat? Well, I don't know the song, but I was interviewed by Aidan McCullen, who is an Irish former pro rugby player who has a great podcast called The Innovation Show. And he hipped me to uh, Hidden Orchestra. So I often ask Alexa to play Hidden Orchestra Radio. So it's kind of like lounge, acid jazz, 07s type vibe. She's already, she's going off already. But but Hidden Orchestra, that that vibe, I like. Definitely going to check that out. That is uh, the Definitely the type of music that uh, that I enjoy listening to. We're going to go into just a uh, couple of random questions here. I like to use this random question generator. First question we've got here is, what's the best thing you got from one of your parents? The permission to follow my heart from both of them. Absolutely love that. In your group of friends, what role do you play? Ah, goofball. <laughs> Dreamer. <laughs> 
what fictional place would you most like to go to? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the first thing that came to my mind was backstage with Billie Holiday, but that would be like historical. Um, We'll take that. That's that's a good good one. And we'll do the final random question here. Pizza or tacos? Gluten-free, dairy-free pizza by diet because I can't eat dairy anymore. (laughs) Natalie, thank you very much. And I went ahead and uh, I shared the Wonder Rigger tip sheet on the LinkedIn comment section. I'll also be sure to include that right there in the show notes for the show. Natalie, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? Awesome. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. People can find me on figure8thinking.com. And there's three ways people can engage. You can hire me to speak. You can hire me for my strategic advisory work. And you can also pick my brain. And all that's on figure8thinking.com. Natalie, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you for having me. It was, it was awesome talking to you. My friends, as usual, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.